The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Let's just begin today. We are in Ephesians. Uh, we are in Ephesians chapter 1. We are still in this introduction to this epistle. Reminder that Paul begins this epistle in a somewhat unusual way compared to some of his other letters. We said that Paul's letters can oftentimes be divided into two sections with a third part at the end, which is a doxology. Paul normally starts with doctrine, he starts with teaching, he tar starts with theology, and then he goes on to application. Uh, theology is not just some sort of ethereal discipline. Uh, it is something that has practical value for our day-to-day -day living, and Paul bears that out in many of his epistles. But when Paul gets to the end of his letters, he always erupts into praise of God. When he talks about all the things that God has done, all the things that God has accomplished, when he talk, talks about God's magnificent grace in the life of believers, he cannot help but erupt into praise. The prophet Jeremiah said in chapter 29 that if I say I will speak no more in his name, there is something like a fire shut up within my bones, and I grow weary with holding it in, and I cannot. And that is typical of Paul. He, he just can't hold it in. But we said here in the epistle to the Ephesians, Paul begins not with the doctrine, but rather with the doxology, with the praise first, which is very unusual. And then he moves into the doctrine. And we ask the question, why is that? And the most logical answer, I suspect, is because Paul had spent so much time with the Ephesians. Um, he spent more time here establishing this church in the city of Ephesus than he did any other place. It was over two years. Now, again, we look at that and we say, well, two years is not a particularly long period of time comes a point in our lives where time not only flies by, it, it just goes by almost at light speed. We can hardly believe it. And so we say, well, two years in Ephesus, that wasn't a very long time at all. But for somebody like Paul, who was an itinerant preacher, who went from place to place, who saw it as his mission to establish churches in various places, who was like a Billy Graham, quite frankly. Actually, it should be the other way around, shouldn't it? Billy Graham was like Paul. But in the sense that Billy Graham went from place to place and uh, was always in a different city, was always in a different country, that's the way the Apostle Paul was. Paul was itinerant. And yet he obviously spent a significant amount of time here in Ephesus compared to these other places. He had a great love for these people. He regarded them as family. And so I think as Paul, as he wrote, sat down to write this letter and he thought about all that God had done in the life of these Ephesian Christians, he could not help but erupt in play, praise and thanksgiving to God. But once Paul erupts in praise and thanksgiving to God, which is the first 14 verses of the letter, he then goes on to pray for them, to pray for the Ephesians. And that's what we're going to take a look at today. Uh, this is Paul, their father in God. He had established the church here. He had such concern for these people, such love, such affection for them, we have to ask ourselves, what would he pray for them? He obviously wants what's best for them, so what would he be asking specifically God to grant the Ephesians? Because if they were his beloved children, 
then these are the things that we should be asking for as well. If these are the things that Paul really wanted for this Ephesian church to make them strong, what do you think Paul would ask for us today? Well, that's what we're going to take a look at. Prayer, let me just say, in general, is a great privilege. Now, oftentimes when we think about prayer, we think that prayer is just the means by which we get from God those things that we want or need. Uh, I often say that, that sometimes we treat prayer as though it's a fast food restaurant. Uh, you know how it is. Uh, you, you go up to that first uh, window and you place your order. There's, there's always a microphone there. And uh, you, you place their order and you pray that they get it right. Because you can't understand a word that they're saying to you. And sometimes people feel that way about God. I, I can't understand a word that he's saying to me, so I'm just going to tell him what I need or what I want and I trust that I'm going to get it. Then you drive around to the second window and you do what? Well, you pay. And that's what we call the offering. That's taking, paying your tithe. I pay my tithe to the church, so I've, I place my order, I paid my tithe, and then you go to the third window and you what? You pick up your order and you go on your way. And I think sometimes that's the way we treat prayer. We think, well, that's, that's what prayer is all about. I'm going to place my order, pay my tithe, and God is going to give me what I want. Well, Scripture is very clear. God is under no obligation whatsoever to give us what we want. We acknowledge this every Sunday when we say the Lord's Prayer. We say, Our Father, who art in heaven. Well, there are times when parents, fathers, or mothers recognize what their children need. Now, sometimes they give them what they want. But there are those times when we don't give them what they want. But we're under an obligation to give them what they need. And the same is true for God. He's going to give us what we need, not necessarily what we want. Sometimes he will give us what we want, but he always promises to give us what we need. So we really shouldn't see prayer as this means by which we get from God things. What is prayer? Prayer, at its heart, really is a privilege. It's the opportunity to go into the presence of God Almighty. It's, it's the opportunity to climb into your Father's lap, basically. I think I've shared with one of the Bible studies this story. When I was the rector at St. David's in Chiral, we had a day school. And uh, our eldest son at the time, just a little boy, was in that day school. And when I would walk through in my clericals, the children were taught to say, Good morning, Father Jeff. Good morning, Father Jeff. Good morning, Father Jeff. And there was this one kid that would always cry out, Hey, Daddy! <laughs> and uh, the teacher actually came to me and she said, Now, I've got to tell you, he's being a a little bit disruptive to call you that. I said, well, I, the reality is he has a privileged relationship with me. I was not just the priest. I was his daddy. And he had that intimate relationship, and he could cry out boldly, daddy. You ever notice when we say the Lord's Prayer, that's what we say? And now as our Savior Christ hath taught us to say we are bold. Why are we bold? You might think that you go before God humbly on your knees. But we cry out boldly. Why? Because we have that special relationship. We have been adopted. Paul talks about that in the introduction to the letter to the Ephesians. One of the great blessings that we have received is adoption. We talked about that in the ancient world, a child that was adopted could not be disinherited. Natural children, under Roman law, could be disinherited, but adopted children could not. They had a privilege. The opportunity to go into the presence of God and call God Father. Indeed, to call him Abba, to call him Daddy. What a privilege. 
doesn't mean you're always going to get from God the things that you want, but it does mean that you can go boldly into his presence. Whatever is burdening you, whatever is exciting you, whatever is making you fearful, you can climb into your father's lap, so to speak, and pour out your concerns to him. So prayer is a great privilege. The image on the scene, of course, is the scene of Queen Esther before Xerxes I, or Hazarus, the king of Persia. The story goes that one of the king's primary advisors had conspired to massacre the Jews to get rid of the Jews. And what the king really didn't know at that time was that his wife was a Jewess. And uh, we're told that she was provoked to go into the king and plead her case before her husband. There was a law, of course, of the Medes and the Persians that said that the king could not be interrupted. Nobody could go into the presence of the king unless they were summoned. If you interrupted the king, it was punishable by death. Remember that in the ancient world, kings did not rule constitutional monarchies. They ruled by divine right. They were absolute rulers. And so this was a law. You could not interrupt. You could not go into the presence of the king. You had to be summoned. But the story goes that Esther decorated herself in her finest gown. She put on all of her makeup or whatever they wore in those days. And she steeled herself. And I don't know about you, but when I used to see this in Sunday school, I used to have the old flannel graphs. I don't know how many of you saw the old flannel graphs. And they always, the story of Queen Esther always amazed me. And the flannel graph always showed her throwing open the doors as the king is in council. There he is in council with all of his advisors. And she throws open the doors and she stands there. And you could just imagine a gasp going up from the crowd. How dare someone interrupt? And the king looks up and he sees his beautiful wife. And he raises his scepter as a form of welcome. And she's able to come in and plead her case on behalf of her people. And if you want to know how the story ends, you'll have to read the book of Esther for yourself. <laughs> but at any rate, that is the great privilege that we have. We have a unique relationship with God. We have a privileged relationship with God. And therefore, we can go and we can ask him for whatever we need. And that is exactly what Paul does. So let's go ahead and look at verses 15 and following. And this great prayer that Paul offers up for his Ephesian brethren. What does he ask God to grant them? Verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that he worked out when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. First thing that Paul asks God to grant the Ephesians is that they may know him. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know you know, there is a sense in which this seems a little strange for us, doesn't it? That Paul, as he begins this prayer for the Ephesian Christians, may pray that they might know God. 
I say that's strange because, after all, these were people who had been evangelized by Paul. These were people who had heard the gospel first from Paul's lips. The assumption would be that they already know God. So why would Paul pray that they may know him? Well, there may be two reasons here for this. First of all, it is perfectly possible to know a great deal about God. It is perfectly possible to go to church your entire life. It's perfectly possible to be baptized, to be confirmed, but to not know God, to know a great deal about Him. I, I've known many people over the course of my life. Dare I say, some of them were my seminary professors who knew a great deal about God, but they did not know Him. I always put it this way. If somebody were to ask me, do you know the Queen of England? Well, I could respond and say yes, in the sense that I know a great deal about her. I know how long she's been on the throne. I know who she's married to. I know who her father was. I know how many children she has. I know that she loves corgi dogs, and I know that she loves horse breeding, and I know a great deal about the Queen of England. But if somebody were to say, but did you really know her? Well, then the answer would have to be, well, no, I, I don't. You know, there are many people in the church that are just like that. They know a great deal about God. Know a great deal about God if for no other reason than they've recited the creed for decades. <laughs> but that is not the same thing as having a personal relationship with God. And so I don't think that Paul automatically assumed or naturally assumed that these people, just because they had heard the gospel, just because they had heard the message of truth, necessarily had a relationship with God. Now, certainly some of them did. But I think one of the things that Paul would have been praying for is that those who did not, who had merely heard the word, but it had never taken root in their lives, he was praying that they might come to know him personally. You've heard me say many times before, at its heart, Christianity is not about religion. It's about relationship. It's about a person. You can remove the Buddha from Buddhism, and you're still going to have the tenets of the faith. You can remove... Muhammad, basically, the great prophet from Islam, and you're still going to have the faith. But if you remove Christianity or you remove Jesus Christ from the Christian faith, the whole thing falls apart. There's nothing else there. In fact, if you think about it, even many of the things that Jesus said were not particularly unique. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus was not the only person to say that in antiquity. It wasn't so much what Jesus said as it was what Jesus did that is significant. And so if you take him, if you remove him from the center of Christianity, as John Stott once said, it's like a frame without a picture. It's like a casket without a jewel. It's like a body without breath. It's lifeless and it's dead. It's just going through the motions. What God wants is for us to have a relationship he wants a relationship with us, and that's what Paul, I think, in part, is praying for, that they might have a relationship with him. But I think there's more to it than that. I think not only is Paul praying that they might have a relationship with God, but those who do have a relationship with God, that they might know him better. That they might know him better. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, which, by the way, I know one of our Bible studies, one of the men's 
groups is actually studying that book, Knowing God. And I've um, commended it to other people, and they said, well, that's hard going. Let me just say, most of the good things are hard going. I mean, most of the things that are of quality and of substance and have the potential to make a difference in your life are going to be hard going. Now, you know that from your own personal experience. You know that from life. The things that are worthwhile are hard. How many of you have ever had children? It's hard. But it's worthwhile. Those of you who have had a long marriage, and presumably a happy marriage, you realize it isn't always a primrose path. It is hard work. But it's worth it. And I would suggest to you that that is true also in the Christian life. So that's a good book to read, J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Some of you may find it to be hard slogging, but I promise you, in the end, you will benefit greatly from it. So I commend that book to you. But in that book, J.I. Packer suggests to us three things that have to do with a personal relationship with God. These are three components of a personal relationship with the Lord. First of all, he said it involves personal dealings. You are dealing with God on a daily basis. He is not merely an acquaintance. He is someone with whom you deal daily. That, that, that's a spouse, you see. You, you deal with them on a daily basis. Children, you deal with them on a daily basis. Now, there are those people that you only meet from time to time, maybe at a cocktail party. Perhaps they blow into town once every six months, and you have a relationship with them in the sense that you are acquaintances. But a person that you know, know, truly know, is a person with whom you have personal dealings. And if you have a personal relationship with Christ, you're going to have personal dealings with him. J.I. Packer also says you have personal involvement, personal investment in the relationship. If somebody says something about a member of your family that's derisive, you take offense at that, don't you? I think about the story of Charles Sumner in 1856 on the floor of the U.S. Senate. Do you all know that story, Charles Sumner? It's a rough one, but I'm going to share it to you just to give you an example. Charles Sumner was the senator from Massachusetts, and um, he stood up in the Senate. He was an abolitionist. This was the 1850s, highly divided nation. Um, the Senate was a dangerous place, believe it or not. It was a dangerous place. And Charles Sumner stood up. He was a very eloquent speaker. He was a bit of a self-righteous prig, to be perfectly honest with you, and many people didn't like him. But he was a great speaker. And he stood up, and he began to speak in the U.S. Senate, and he decided to pick on a very distinguished, elderly senator from South Carolina. And he began to talk about what a man does with a harlot. Now, this is the 1850s. This is the height of the Victorian era. You didn't do that sort of thing. And he began to talk about what a man does with a harlot. And he described it in rather graphic detail for the time. We would call it PG today. But in those days, it was R-rated. You didn't do that sort of thing. And then at the end of two days of this, see, they took a break, and then he came back, and he started right in the next day. Um, he described who the harlot was, and the harlot was slavery. He was an abolitionist. Well, the next day, he was sitting in the Senate chamber at his desk. The desks were bolted to the ground, and um, he suddenly noticed that there was a man standing over him. 
Preston Brooks from South Carolina, who was a congressman and had been related to that senator. And Preston Brooks took it upon himself to cane Charles Sumner on the floor of the U.S. Senate into an unconscious state. Now, whether or not you think that was legitimate or not, the point I'm trying to make is that Preston Brooks took great offense that a member of his family had been bludgeoned verbally on the floor of the U.S. Senate. He, he just could not ignore that. Well, you see, if you and I have a personal relationship with God, it offends us greatly, or it should offend us greatly, when people say things derisively about God. You know, when I was a boy, you could say anything about me that you wanted to say. But if you said anything about my mother, isn't that true? Them's fighting words. See, we took great offense at that sort of thing. Well, if you and I have a personal relationship with God, if we have personal dealings with God, a personal investment with God, then when somebody talks derisively about God, or takes God's name in vain, or speaks about God in an offensive way, there should be something that rises within us that takes great offense at that, and we should have a desire to defend God. Too many people, they may not like it, they may think that it's impolite, but they don't necessarily take offense at it. Would you take offense, gentlemen, if another man said something derisive about your wife? Would you defend her honor? Wives, if somebody said something derisive about your husband, would you rise up to defend him? Of course you would, because you have a relationship with him. Well, there is a sense in which when you have a relationship with God, you defend God, you stand for God. That's what it means to have personal involvement, personal investment. J.I. Packer said the third thing about a relationship with God, a sign of a true relationship with God, is that you acknowledge that this relationship is the consequence of grace. God's undeserved, unearned favor, which is to say that if you have a relationship with God, you recognize that God is the one who initiated it. You didn't initiate it with him. He initiated it with you. The only way you and I can come to know God is if God makes himself known to us. Well, stop and ask yourself the question, do I have that kind of a relationship with God? Do I have personal dealings? I'm not asking the question, do you know about God? I'm asking the question, do you have a personal relationship with God and Jesus Christ? Do you have daily dealings with him? Are you so invested in the life of God that when somebody takes his name in vain? I've got to tell you, it is a pet peeve of mine whenever I hear somebody say, Jesus Christ, and they do not mean that in a positive or worshipful way, just in a careless way, I've got to tell you, I want to throttle them. The only reason I don't is because of Jesus Christ. But I take great offense at that, you see. We, we use that name so carelessly. Does something rise up within you that, that makes you desire to want to defend God? Now, somebody might say, well, God can take care of himself. Well, that may be true. But that's not the point, you see. It's the fact that you have a relationship with him, that he is precious to you. And finally, do you realize that if you have a relationship with God, it is not the result of your own doing. It's the result of God's grace in your life. But he plucked you as a brand from the burning. 
and that he loves you and longs to be with you. Paul prays for the Ephesians to know him. I think he means that. That they may know him if they don't know him, and those who do know him may know him better. Personal dealings, personal involvement, and God's grace. Paul goes on from there to say that the Ephesians might know the scope of salvation. Listen to these words again. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, but also having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him in the heavenly places. First of all, Paul wants us to know the hope to which we have been called. The hope to which we have been called. When many of us think about the word hope, we generally think in terms of credulity or hope against hope. You go home and you you're hoping for steak because most of the time it's Kraft macaroni and cheese. But you're hoping, but you don't have a great deal of confidence in the fact that you're going to get the steak. You're, you're expecting macaroni and cheese. And if you get steak, well, what a wonderful thing. What a, what a surprise. That's what we think of when we think of hope. It's what we're, we're longing for, but we're not expecting. But when the Bible talks about hope, that is not what it means at all. Hope, from a biblical point of view, is that which we know is guaranteed to us, it just hasn't been realized yet. It is a sure and a certain hope, and we're going to come back to that theme in just a minute. Matthew Henry was one of the great biblical commentators of a former age, but he came from a long line of deep-thinking Christians. His father, Philip Henry, was engaged to a young woman in England, uh, Philip Henry did not come from an illustrious background. But the woman that he loved and wanted to marry did. Now, of course, in the 18th century in England, there was uh, a deep class structure. And you didn't pass over those lines. Anybody that's ever read Jane Austen, you know how this works. Uh, you married people of your own class. And, and ladies always wanted to marry somebody who was of an upper class so that she could elevate herself but also elevate her family. But while women, it was acceptable for women to marry up, oftentimes men who tried to marry up were oftentimes looked down upon. And Philip Henry wanted to marry this woman. She was a Christian woman. She believed. She'd heard the gospel. She'd been converted. And uh, she knew that Philip Henry was a good man. He was a godly man. He had a desire to know Christ and to make Christ known. And she really wanted to marry this man, but she came from the upper class of society, and he did not. Her father was a gentleman. Philip Henry's father was not. And so she went to her father, and um, Philip Henry had asked for her hand in marriage, and her father had refused. And in those days, you dare not go against your father's wishes. And so she went in to plead with her father that she might marry this man. And he said, I want to know one thing. He said, I want to know, where does this Philip Henry come from? And his daughter responded, Father, I don't know where he comes from, but I know where he's going. 
I don't know where he comes from. But I know where he's going. I know where he's going. Do you know that? Do you know that beyond the shadow of a doubt? Do you know where you're going? Is your life hidden in Christ that you know that neither height nor depth, angels nor principality, things present nor things to come, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? And do you live in that confidence, in that hope? Or as you approach that inevitable day, which we are all going to find one day, the day of our death, are you hoping, hoping against hope, so to speak, that you're going to get the steak rather than the macaroni and cheese? Do you have that confidence? Because you see, if you have that kind of confidence, you, you think about people who didn't have that confidence and what happened to them after they found that confidence. Martin Luther was a man who was never used by God early on because he was so filled with fear and a sense of unworthiness and a sense of God's judgment and a sense of God's wrath that he really wasn't ever used by God. But when he read those words from Romans chapter 1, the just shall live by faith. It's not a matter of what I do. It's a matter of what Christ has done, his finished work upon the cross. Then all of the sudden, what happened? Martin Luther became a giant. Same thing was true for John Wesley. John Wesley had been a great scholar. He had gone to Oxford. He'd been ordained. He'd been sent over here to Savannah, Georgia to convert the heathen. I've always thought he must have thought that there's where the heathen were located in Savannah, Georgia. And so he went there to convert the heathen. But he soon discovered that he himself had never been converted. And it wasn't until that experience in Aldersgate when he heard that, that reading from Paul's epistle, or actually from Martin Luther's commentary on Paul's epistle, that suddenly his heart was strangely warmed. And all of a sudden, John Wesley, who had had to flee the colonies, became one of the greatest preachers. Many people have suggested, many historians have suggested, that the only reason Great Britain never went through a bloody revolution, the likes of which the French went through, was because of the preaching of John Wesley and George Whitfield. That's remarkable, isn't it? Charles Wesley was another. Charles Wesley was the more artistically inclined brother of the Wesleys. And we're told that he was a lover of music. But until his conversion, which was just a few weeks before his brother's conversion, he had never written a single hymn. After his conversion, after he came into that personal relationship with Christ, after he knew that his life was hidden in Christ and nothing could separate him, not even himself, not even your own sin. This is why Luther said, we're simul ustis et peccator. We are at the same time justified, and yet we're still sinners. We still fall, but our life is hidden in Christ. And he will finish what he has started. And as a result of that, Charles Wesley went on to write 6,500 hymns. 6,500! And they're great hymns. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Hark, the herald angels sing, and can it be? See, when your life is hidden in Christ, there's a confidence, there's a hope. You haven't experienced the fullness of salvation, but you have the hope that it is yours. It is a sure, as I said, and certain hope. Sure and certain hope. Uh, keep your finger there in Ephesians and turn, if you will, to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. And this is what the author of Hebrews said. 
and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. The full assurance. Isn't it interesting that the words hope and assurance are linked? The old Navy prayer book, when you buried somebody at sea, would say something to this effect. We commit his soul to God and his body to the deep in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection at the end of the age and the coming of Jesus Christ at which the sea shall give up her dead. I think that's wonderful. The sure and certain hope. It's only hope because it hasn't yet been realized. It's sure and it's certain because it's guaranteed. And Paul has already talked about that, hasn't he? Why do we have a sure and certain hope? Because he said he's already given us the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is the down payment, the guarantee that what has been promised will be fulfilled. A sure and a certain hope. It's also a living hope. Turn, if you will, to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Now that's language, of course, that comes right out of John's gospel as well. Jesus told Nicodemus the same thing. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. But Peter says we have been born again to a what? to a living hope. Why is it a living hope? Because it is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Do you have that kind of confidence? Do you have that kind of hope that if the Lord were to call you home today, and nobody knows, we're always shocked when somebody dies unexpectedly. We should be shocked, but we shouldn't be surprised, because nobody knows. We have a tendency to plan out our lives. That's one of the points that I'm going to make in the annual address later on today. When I came here as your rector, I had it all planned out. I knew what I was going to do. I had this whole year planned out. I was ready to go. And then the Supreme Court interrupted my life. And so we have a tendency to plan out our lives. We think we know how things are going to go. But the reality is none of us do. None of us really know how life is going to go. And so my question is this. If life were suddenly to interrupt you, would you have an absolute confidence, an absolute hope that if God were to call you home today, you would be in his presence? And when you step through that gate of death, you would step into the presence of God Almighty and be welcomed. If you don't have that kind of a confidence, that kind of a hope, and let me tell you something, you'll never be effective for God because you'll always be fearful of messing it up. That's the wonderful thing about the love of a parent for a child. It doesn't matter how badly they mess up, you're still going to love them. That doesn't necessarily mean you're always going to be pleased with them. It doesn't mean you're always going to be happy with what they've done. But it is an unconditional love. Sometimes it is a very painful love. But it is an unconditional love. 
And that's the kind of love that God has for those who are his adopted children. It is an unconditional love. And when we live in that confidence, it is a living hope. Sealed, guaranteed. The nail's been clinched by Jesus' resurrection. And it, of course, is a blessed hope. It is a blessed hope. That's what the book of Titus says. It is a blessed hope. So Paul prays that the Ephesians may know him, know God, know him personally, and know him better. He prays that they may understand the hope to which they have been called, a sure, certain, living, and blessed hope. And then he prays for this, that they may know the riches of the glorious inheritance. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. That we may know the riches of his glorious inheritance. If you're a Christian, you're already receiving the blessings of God's salvation. But it is nothing compared to what you're one day going to see. I've always said that one of my favorite lines from the works of C.S. Lewis is that final section of the last battle, when you get to the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, and the children have a sense that they're going to be sent back to their own world for the last time, back to the Shadowlands. And Aslan looks at them and he says, you're not going back. He said, you had a dream that there was a railway accident. He said, well, there was a real railway accident, he said. And you are, as they say in the Shadowlands, dead. The children suddenly realize they were more alive than they'd ever been. That's the reason they wouldn't want to go back into the Shadowlands. He said, you are dead in the Shadowlands, but you are alive here. And he said, this is the beginning. He said, everything up to this point has been nothing but the title page. All of your adventures up to this point have been nothing but the title page. Now, he said, begins the great adventure, the great story in which each chapter is better than the one before. Oh, my goodness. Heaven is not sitting on a cloud and plucking a harp. It is a grand adventure in which we get to know God better for all eternity. It is the grand adventure which goes on for eternity. And each chapter, each page, each line is better than the one before. You probably saw in the interviews over the course of the past week when they replayed them of Billy Graham asking if he was afraid to die. And he said, no, I look forward to it. I look forward to it. Because his heart's desire, his longing was to be with what? Christ to have that peace, that fulfillment of peace completed. I didn't see it, but a friend of mine told me that they saw the grave of Ruth Bell Graham. And you know what she has on her tombstone? Billy Graham's going to have a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ emblazoned on his tombstone at his own request. You know what Ruth Bell Graham put on hers? Construction complete. Thanks for your patience. That's a wonderful description, isn't it? Construction is complete. Thank you for your patience. 
What a wonderful message. What a glorious hope and inheritance. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, it has not entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. You know, some of you have reached a point in life where you probably know more people in heaven than you do on earth. And when you get to that point, suddenly you discover that the things of this life begin to lose their allure. You know, for the first 50 years of your life, what are you trying to do? Amass a lot of stuff. And for the last 10 years of your life, you're trying to get rid of a lot of stuff. All of those things, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. All of a sudden, this world and all of its allure, all of its attraction begins to lose its flavor. And we long for that greater light, that greater shore. Paul prays that they may know the riches of the glorious inheritance. It is an inheritance. He also prays that they may know God's incomparable power. And this is what we're going to take a look at in greater detail next week. That we may know God's incomparable power. You know, so often it's a case where when we think about Christianity and the hope that we have in Christianity, we think of past events, a hope that is grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that is true. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's true. Or when we think of the hope that we have as Christians, we think of a future hope, don't we? To one day be in heaven with those we love, or in the presence of God with those we love. We long for that day when all the pain, all the sorrow will be over, and God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. But Paul wants us to understand that part of a living hope is not just a hope that is grounded in the past. It is not just a hope for the future. It is a hope that is a present reality. And that's why he talks about the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is available to you and to me, not just in the future, but here and now. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to you and to me now. It's not just a past hope. It's not just a future hope. It is a present hope, a present reality. And if you want to learn more about that, come back next week. And we'll learn about this present power, this present reality, the hope, the confidence that you and I have, not because of anything we have done, but because of what he has done finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul's prayer to the Ephesians, for the Ephesians, and we thank you, Lord, that this is our Lord Jesus Christ's prayer for us as he stands before you, pleading on our behalf as our advocate. Lord, fill us with a sense of our unworthiness, a sense of our own sinfulness, that we may seek a relationship with Jesus Christ, that we may be forgiven, that we may be redeemed, that we may be adopted into the family. And then having been adopted into the family, Lord, fill us with that confidence, that assurance, that living hope that nothing can now separate us from the love of God. And come what may, cost what it will, we can live for him who died for us. And we can do that in a sure confidence that there is waiting for us greater things than we can ask or imagine. 
All this we ask in Jesus' name.